Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is the best of This is Nashville. All week, we've been bringing you our best episodes of 2022. That list would not be complete without our episode on Nashville Nice. See, look, when I first moved to town, I got a primer on how to drive the Nashville streets. The biggest and most important part of that lesson, wave when someone lets you merge into traffic. I quickly caught on, so much so that when I let people merge into traffic and they don't wave, I get a little bit salty. Only like a grain or two. I'm becoming more of a Nashvillean every day. In all seriousness, though, there are certain expectations when it comes to being polite. Where do they come from? And are they changing? That's coming up later this hour. But first, 2022 is nearly behind us. And like many people, we've been looking back over the past year here at WPLN. The year saw Roe versus Wade overturned, a big election in which Nashville got divided up three ways in Congress and rebuilding in Waverly, a community ravished by flash flooding. WPLN has been there through it all, and here to walk us through a few of the highlights from our newsroom this year are our digital editor, Rachel Iacovoni, and our interim news director, Chaz Sisk. Welcome to you both. Thanks for being here. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having us. Okay, so let's start with this year's biggest story, abortion. You both oversaw a lot of our coverage. What story stood out to you? Uh, Well, you know, this is such a politicized topic that what we really wanted to do here as a newsroom is emphasize the human aspects of it. And so even before the Dobbs decision came out, we were really talking about how to do that. And for me, one of the stories that really stands out in that is one that was done by Paige Flager. Uh, She interviewed a pair of sisters, one of whom had her first child when she was young and another one who had uh, quietly got an abortion when she was young. And you could just see from the choices that they made how that affected their lives over the the next decade or so. And so Paige caught up with one of those sisters at her home in Pegram. She really likes her life now. But sitting on her couch inside, she admits that sometimes... She thinks how it might have turned out differently if she had made a different decision over a decade ago. You know, had I known more, had I done, you know, been able to talk to my parents, talk to my sister, I probably wouldn't have two kids right now. Marianne got pregnant with her first son when she was only 16. Her story is a familiar one in Tennessee. The state is in the top 10 in the nation for teen pregnancies. There were things her family just didn't talk about, sex included. So when she started feeling nauseous and missed her period, she rushed to the store and bought a bunch of pregnancy tests. And I took five tests because the first one was positive. So then I just kept taking them thinking like, surely it's wrong. It was not wrong. She remembers trying to find out where she could get an abortion, but she didn't know how. The only research she had ever done was for school projects. Never anything this big or overwhelming. So she hid her pregnancy for six months. So it's really important to remember that Marianne Sung says she's really happy with where her life is now. And so is her sister. You know, her sister who got the abortion, she was able to go to college. She was able to travel abroad. She was able to start her career and she was able to have a family. You know, Marianne didn't get to do all those things. She didn't get to go to college. And, um, you know, it took a little bit longer for her to start the rest of her family. But, you know, she says she's been blessed with a child who's uh, with a son who's now 11 and that they're doing really well. And to me, it really illustrates both, you know, how tough the decision to get an abortion can be and also how tough it can be not to get an abortion. 
abortion. And regardless of which way you choose, it's, it's a hard decision. We knew a lot of people in Tennessee would be facing that choice in a new light after the Dobbs decision. There was a lot of confusion about what was legal, medication or surgical abortion, especially because the state's full abortion ban didn't immediately go into effect. Like Chaz said, we were already thinking about this since the legislature had passed some restrictions to abortion access on its own. But it wasn't until your episode, actually, on This is Nashville about telling stories through comics and graphic novels and that idea really cemented it for me. We reached out to one of your guests, Nika Orock, and asked if she'd be willing to illustrate what options pregnant people now had in Tennessee and what options they could access outside the state. That guide gained so much traction online that when I recently met Hannah Good, the comics editor for the Washington Post, she said their illustration team looked at our guide and said to themselves, we should have narrowed in on one state like they did here. Anika has since illustrated for the Post, too. So that was all of this is Nashville connection, really, that's gone on to educate the nation. So that's how we covered a national issue. What are some of the Tennessee stories you think were top notch? I mean, my mind immediately goes to Ambriel Crutchfield's River Chase series. It may be about one complex in one city in Tennessee, but it speaks to housing issues in every urban center in the state. The River Chase Apartments, for those who may not have heard this reporting, was this colorful, affordable housing complex in East Nashville with a view of the skyline, but also mice and spiders and the literal ceiling caving in. Mm. Residents had nowhere else to go in many cases, too. So Ambriel talked to many residents and advocates, but the main lens of the story is Virginia Holland, who lived with her children in River Chase for four years. On a follow-up check-in with the community and, you know, move-out date was approaching, I happened to be with Ambriel and got to meet Virginia and see her place firsthand. I think without Ambriel's dedicated months-long reporting, so many of the stories of what happened within those walls would have been lost as soon as they were demolished. You know, for me, the thing that I'm really proud of is our coverage of the rebuilding in Waverly. Um, this is the small town in Humphreys County where 19 people died in flash flooding in 2021. And, you know, I grew up in a small town myself, so I know just how devastating a loss like that can be, especially in a small community. And, you know, one thing I really hate, both as an editor and as a, a listener, is news coverage that focuses on a disaster and then quietly moves on without any coverage of the community. So, you know, we re- made a real commitment as a newsroom to report on the rebuilding regularly from Waverly. And there were so many stories that came out of that that I'm proud of over the course of the year. Um, One of them was Damon Mitchell late last year did a great story about a beloved supermarket that reopened. Earlier this year, Juliana Kim told us about an Asian-American family that owned the city's only uh, Chinese restaurant and about how they were displaced and hoped to come back even so. Um, And then also uh, Caroline Eggers was there when they had the vigil uh, downtown to mark the first anniversary. A lot of top stories we identified had to do with policing. That's been a big focus here at WPLN. Chaz, tell us about some of the coverage you oversaw. Yeah, uh, you know, criminal justice coverage is something that our listeners told us for many, many years they wanted more of. And we were able to add that as a beat a few years ago. We talked a lot about what we wanted to do with that criminal justice focus. And it was not just to do if it bleeds, it bleeds. If it bleeds, it leads. Mm-hmm. It was to really focus on the issues behind policing. And, you know, and one of those is shootings by police officers. It's been a, a problem for quite some time. And in 2021, there were 10 shootings by police, seven of them fatal. And a lot of those situations 
really involved mental health issues. And, uh, you know, that trend kind of carried over into January when Landon Estep was killed on the National Interstate in a really very public shooting. And so Samantha Max, who was our criminal justice reporter at the time, really dug into that story and set out to tell Landon's story in a way that was very human by through, through what his family had to say about them, while also laying out exactly what happened. And here's the story that she did the next day. Hey, baby, I love you. Chelsea Eastep didn't realize how much she would treasure that text message from her husband. But as she cried on the steps of the Metro Courthouse Friday evening, she was grateful she had saved it. Eastep's husband, Landon, was killed by police on the interstate last week. Um, Landon wasn't a bad guy, and he was crying out for help. And his cries went completely unanswered. Thursday morning, Landon Eastep woke up agitated. He struggled with mental illness, and his widow says he went for a walk to calm down. Around 2 p.m., a state trooper spotted Eastep, who was white, on the shoulder of I-65. The troopers started talking to him, and at some point Eastep pulled out a box cutter. The TBI says officers tried for about 30 minutes to convince him to put it down. An edited body camera footage released by MNPD, an off-duty Mount Juliet officer tells Eastep he won't be taken to jail. Please, just drop it, brother. That's all you got to do. I promise you. After a couple more minutes, Eastep pulled out what officials describe as a metal cylindrical object, not a gun. But he held it up as if he were about to shoot. Nine law enforcement officers fired at Eastep. He fell to the ground and was soon pronounced dead. Well, you know, after that shooting, I think there has been a bit of a shift in policing in Nashville. You know, Chief John Drake, who I know you've invited onto this show, uh, he has been expanding the role of mental health professionals in answering calls by police. Um, It's too soon to say whether that's a trend or not, but there have been many fewer shootings this year. You know, and that's just one of the topics that we've covered. We've also done a series on the police academy and police training, and we've reported a lot on theft of guns from cars. We've been talking a lot about the important stories of 2022, but we like to have fun here too, right? Yeah. So what are some of the great joyful stories that WPLN produced in 2022? Yeah, well, one of the pleasures of being the uh, the news director is you get to go through all the coverage for the year. And I have to say one of my very favorites is a feature that you all did right here on This is Nashville. And that's when one of your producers, Rose Gilbert, dragged your executive producer, Andrea Tudhope, down to one of those party buses mm-hmm. on Lower Broadway. Yes. And, uh, you know, you see those things, you think, oh, God, how obnoxious are those? But it, it really sounded like it was a lot of fun. Transportainment vehicles have run into plenty of issues with safety in the past few years. They're slipping, they're falling off entirely. Then, of course, there was that one truck with the hot tub. That one was forced to close down. Right. So, yeah, there will be a party, but these buses have rules. How's everybody doing? We do want y'all up dancing, having fun, moving and grooving, vibing, y'all. Y'all can stand up here, hold on to this right here. Y'all can put one leg up here, twerk it out, whatever you're into. Y'all can sit up here. No flashing or mooning. I'm sorry. Damn it! Damn it! That ruins the entire trip. I know. So anyway, that was such a delight. And people, if they haven't heard that story, they need to hear the whole thing. 
for me on digital. I don't have any audio to play that is as fun as that. <laughs> but the joyful news you can use style stories are always the ones that stick out for me. Over the summer, for example, our midday producer, Cindy Abrams, and our Dow Jones News Fund intern at the time, Jackie Llanos, put our heads together to make these massive spreadsheets of all the Pride and then Juneteenth events that were happening all across Middle Tennessee. We made these fun graphics and heavily linked throughout the web article version. So even if you were in Lebanon or Shelbyville, you had options to celebrate throughout the month or weekend. This is where some longtime listeners may ask me where the annual holiday lights map is this year, to which I will say the there are not that many big changes I've noticed. So if you're a fan of the last listicle we had in 2021, it's still pretty accurate. You can check out that guide on WPLN.org and has links throughout to fact check me on this if you want. All right. That is WPLN digital editor Rachel Iacovoni and interim news director Chaz Sisk. Thanks you both for being here. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Yeah. Thanks, Khalil. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about our quirky mannerisms and niceties here in Nashville. What makes up Nashville nice? Stay with us. This is the best of This is Nashville. And this is the best of This is Nashville. This week, we brought you the best of 2022. Today, it's Nashville nice. Now, my mother always told me and my siblings that it's better to be kind than nice. I've lived in other parts of the country where people are not concerned with being nice or kind. So I had a tiny bit of culture shock when I moved to Nashville. Almost everyone was very nice. And I noticed it right away. I also spent a lot of time asking myself if people were being true, or as Gen Xers would say, real. For some, the verdict is pending, but I will say that in my experience, Nashville is a very welcoming place. But what is Nashville nice, and what does it mean? My next guests are here to help answer that question. Frida Player is a longtime Nashvillian who's also executive director of the nonprofit Emerge Tennessee. And Dr. Carol Busey is the official Davidson County historian. Frida, Dr. Busey, thanks for being here and welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you for having me. So, Frida, I'd like to start with you. What does Nashville nice mean to you? Nashville nice is um, Nashville Pacific Southern um, genteelness. Mm -hmm. It's where you come into a town, people will speak to you. Um, people will make sure you know your way. Do you have a church home? Just making sure you're settled in and creating an initial sense of community. And that's what I experienced when I came to 1996, when I came to Fisk University. Um, and then as I kind of stayed here for a while, that was my introduction to Nashville Nice. It's this, uh, this Nashville specific version of the Southern genteelness and the Southern hospitalities that you experience anywhere in the Southeast. Describe what it was like for you in 96 when you first encountered it. Um, Well, I came from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. That's my hometown. And I came here to go to Fisk and was making sure I got settled in, making sure I had a way to the grocery store, making sure I had things that I needed to set into my dorm. Um, When the holidays came, um, professors made sure I had a place to eat for Thanksgiving or Christmas if I couldn't make it home and save my classmates. Um, So that's really more of the national nice. Make sure you had a home. Um, 
I suggested churches. So I went to church I went to at the time. They made sure I had a place to stay. They fed me on Sundays um, mm-hmm. after church. Mm-hmm. So especially as a college kid and being broke, <laughs> that good home meal always kind of filled my belly and my heart and my soul. And so that was really Nashville nice, knowing that you had some place to eat, some place to take care of um, if you really needed a ride. And then also checking in with my family, um, people who met my parents, they would ask. You know, how's your family doing? How's your dad? How's your mom? And in a genuine way, they actually remember who they are and really inquired about their well-being mm-hmm. that I wouldn't find in my hometown in Pennsylvania unless they had a relationship with my parents. Now, Dr. Busey, how about you? When did you hear Nashville Nice? And what's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear that? The first thing that comes to mind when you speak about Nashville Nice is that there is this level of kindness and graciousness about Nashville that I think Nashville is very proud of. Very early on, the business community here, uh, really before 1900, began what we refer to as boosterism, out trying to sell the city to other cities. And so, of course, Nashville's location played some part in this. We were not part of the Deep South, and pretty much the Nashville establishment wanted people to know we were different from the Deep South states. And so it was this this feeling of this is a unique place. It's Southern, yes, but it's not that Southern. And yet you see that if you start peeling off the layers of niceness and gentility, it goes back, the history goes back to some darker things in our history. Mm. It was a code of sorts of how people, uh, but particularly people who had formerly been enslaved or were free blacks even before the Civil War, and Nashville did have a substantial population of free blacks here, they learned this code of how they had to act. And and certainly lower class whites were were also put into this category of needing to know this code, but yet they seem to see themselves as a step up above the f- people who had formerly been enslaved. And so what you see here in Nashville is, is, yes, we had some water fountains, a lot of water fountains, in fact, that had whites and colored on them. The same was true of restrooms in public buildings. In some public buildings, such as the courthouse, which used to be the center of both the city government and the county government before Metro, uh, you you had people going to whichever bathroom had to be the closest to their office. And so those codes weren't rigidly enforced, but then some were. And African-Americans had, had really realized what the limits were. And so it was really a shock to the city of Nashville in 1957 when the first public schools in Nashville were going to be integrated that September, that a bomb went off at Hattie Cotton School where where several African-American children had been enrolled. And I think that was in some ways Nashville's wake-up call. Mayor Ben West 
really, really was stunned by this happening in his city. Mm. And so you've got to look at all the dynamics of this. Yes, Nashville is a place that is very friendly. You get on the elevator. And one of the things you notice about New York, Nashville versus New York, where Tracy has lived, is that uh, people don't make eye contact when you walk down the street. And here in Nashville, people make eye contact when when they're walking down the street. And, you know, if somebody stops you in the parking garage at the, the library there and they're trying to get to some building and it's clear they got out of a car from a different state, if they come up to you and say, can you tell me where XYZ is, the Ryman Auditorium, you feel very comfortable striking up a conversation with them. And it's it's true. The questions are, where are you from? You get in the elevator, where are you from? And it will get down to, what question would you say, Frida? Question three or five of, and where do you go to church? Church, <laughs> church home, yep. Church, church home. home. Now, I have yet to be asked about my church home, but I also was told that when you're crossing the street, you make eye contact with the driver, that's but I don't know if that's polite or more for safety reasons as a pedestrian. Now, now, Frida, Dr. Busey mentioned our city's history with racial segregation. So how are the rules of Nashville nice? How do they kind of play into that? How are they different between black and white spaces? Um, one place I would say, particularly I'm by profession, I'm a political consultant. And so what I really see it in the activist community, in the political community, um, is that in the black political community, you really have to go and have conversations with the political elders or the political leaders when you want to get involved, when you want to run for office. Um, and that's one way it's different that you really have to go and kind of got called do the political tour mm. and really kind of either get their blessing or let them know that you're running. That's a whole different kind of political conversation. But I think that's really different in the black community of really um, paying homage, paying respect to those who um, blaze a political trail, particularly in the segregated South when Metro government formed um, and the traditional black historic seats that are councilmatic seats that that exist. Um, I think that was really different compared in the white community. Usually in, in the political realm, it's more of you have that one gatekeeper that would just open up and verify and give you that credential to go through the political sphere. And I think that's more the difference of how the community works between the two. I want to bring in my next guest. She's an entrepreneur, business mentor, and native Nashvilleian, Tracy Hughes-Royal. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you for having me. Now, you're a fifth-generation Nashvilleian. How would you define Nashville nice? I Well, I look at it from the business perspective. And growing up here in Nashville, being born in Nashville, but also living in New York for 18 years, I can go do a direct comparison. For example, as Dr. Busey mentioned, there's a difference between looking a person in the eye versus not looking them in the eye. In New York, people are busy and they have somewhere to go. So they're not being rude. They're being direct and they're trying to get to where they're going. Here in Nashville, in terms of Nashville Nice, we like to strike up a conversation, get to know you, especially if we were looking to do business, not coming in and striking an immediate business deal. They may want to do happy hour or have dinner, break bread, and understand your family, your values, your background, where'd you come from, what do you like? They will have the social 
conversation or the social graces before they even move into a business realm. So I've really been operating from the Nashville nice in terms of how you do business. You can't come here and expect to have an immediate deal and not sit down and have dinner and just talk about each other's families. What are the benefits of that? I mean, I understand that to be successful in business, it's about building those relationships. But talk about the business benefits um, or detriments of the New York style of let's get straight to the point and the Nashville style of, hey, let's have these social graces. Let's learn a little bit more about the person you'll potentially be doing business with. As a publicist, I have a PR company here and I um, did PR in New York. I can tell you exact, um, show you a direct comparison. So in New York, you are calling the assignment desk at the news station and you are pitching your story and hoping they will run it. They're very short. They're very to the point. Just tell me what it is. And then they hang up. And you may not know that your story was picked up here in Nashville. You can call an assignment desk or call a producer. They will take time to chat with you, Mm. learn a little bit about your story. Not only if they run the story, they will actually send you a link or show you where the story ran. So they are they're into the relationship where there's a slight investment of time. I like that. Now, you know, speaking of breaking bread, we got a tweet from at Dixie Girl 256. Nashville Nice is bringing food when there's a death in the family. Usually your signature dish, a casserole or a pie, typically cheese, um, you know, chess, typically chess, pardon me. And, you know, you, you, you never... Chess pie. You, chess yes, pie. get it right now. Get That's it right. That's my favorite I, I dessert. Have, yes, I haven't had it yet. Chess pie. Oh, you're missing yes. something oh. big. Okay, I am. Okay, Nashville Nice, thank you for putting me onto that. I'm going to get some chess pie. And you pie. can find a chess pie in a local grocery store in the bakery department, and it's worth the treat. Okay. Or at a meet and three. All right. At a meet yes. and three, for sure. <laughs> uh, definitely. Then we had a show about meet and threes not too long ago. I'm going to go down to Arnold's and get me some. Now, uh, she finishes the tweet by asking, you know, and you never visit someone's home without bringing something, even if it's just a six-pack. Frida, does that ring true? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you always have, um, I have a stash of hostess gifts in my house, whether it's, you know, little uh, smell goods or soap or something. Yeah, you, you have to bring something. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, a, I, I had a surgery a couple of weeks ago and I got overwhelmed of, you know, pe- my generation Gen X, we don't bring dishes as much as in, I'm going to order you Uber Eats mm-hmm. or I'm going to do it. So I got Venmoed, <laughs> um, you know, $20, $50 to order a meal or people just, you know, had um, Uber Eats just drop me off a meal after my surgery. And I got overwhelmed where I had to tell people, can we postpone this a couple of days? because I have too many leftovers um, for that. And that's, and I would say that is very true. Okay. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Lake Colonna. We're talking this hour about the idea of so-called Nashville nice. So, you know, how about the other side of this, Frida? Like, is there a way that an outsider might not understand that someone in Nashville is just being nice? I'm thinking of something I've heard described as the Nashville no. <laughs> yes. So the very basic of it, as, as someone who's done community organizing and who's done canvassing for political campaigns, if someone says, I might come, I'll think about it, I maybe, that is a no. But they're not going to tell you because, you know, they want to respect your time and your effort. I would come back and we have our debriefs. It's like, well, I got these maybe, so they're going to come. I was like, do they say maybe or think? They're like, yes, like they're not coming. Okay. And that's part of the Nashville nice. Like, we're never going to say, no, I can't make it. I have an obligation. We're like, well, I'll think about it. I'll try. 
The other part of that is it does have a kind of a negative connotation where you see in the political world and kind of like we were talking about in the business world, it's more of we're going to let you go so far. Um, and that uh, what I, I've run into my other elected official colleagues is that why doesn't this happen in Nashville? I was like, well, this is Nashville. That's how we do it, mm. that you have to respect the political culture or they felt like you haven't paid your dues. And so the elected officials who are transplant, particularly in the last decade, they run against this brick wall of, I want to do this. I want to accomplish this. And I was like, whoa, hold up. You have to pay your dues. You have to go do the tour. You have to kiss the ring. Because when it goes back to that social graces, and the same thing in the political world, you have to have the dinners. You have to have the cocktails. Because it's more of, are we going to the same vision? And also, are you dismantling what I've worked for that you don't know about? And I tell people just because you see it, don't see it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Okay. Dr. Busey, you want to weigh in? Well, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, there are there are definitely limits and things that you you shouldn't do. Nashville does not want to be seen as an unpleasant place. There is a level of pleasantness everywhere. And uh, if we don't, we're often not direct. We, we say, well, I'll think about it when you know you don't want to go to that mm. or whatever it is, uh, I'll think about it, which is really code for no. And another thing you see here is, and my, my daughter grew up here in Nashville and now lives in Sweden. So she and her husband and three kids were here for five weeks this summer. And Ellen was struck by all of the people in the grocery store saying to her, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am, <laughs> yes, ma'am. And, you know, she she couldn't get over that. And her little children who were bilingual, they were stunned at anybody saying, yes, ma'am. And certainly in the North, in New York, for example, you don't have the server say, well, yes, ma'am. And uh, so it's an interesting thing. But there are these, these gentle things you have to do to feel a part of the community. Nice. Yeah, don't, mm-hmm. when, like, when your elder says, like, if you don't hear what they say, you never say what. You always say, ma'am, sir. Mm-hmm. They hear the repeat what they're saying. It's like little things like that. It's also like a trigger of knowing whether you're from Nashville or not. And I remember just being the cousin that always came down south for the summer. I always had to learn that code switch. That, that's funny because my mother raised me with that ethic, but she's a New Yorker. Dad's from upstate New Jersey, so it's interesting of how maybe, but their parents are from the South, so they pass that along the family line. Now, Tracy, you work with politicians as well, right? I teach social media media classes to Tennessee politicians. Uh, UT County, Tennessee, they retain my firm to teach them. So I actually taught a class this past Tuesday to some newly elected officials from Sumner County, Montgomery County, Williamson County, Davidson County. How are they reacting to the codes of conduct about niceness in Nashville? We don't really go into the codes of the Nashville nice, but I will say what we do do is look for commonalities. So, for example, whatever your platform may have been, how can you integrate that into your brand? Because essentially you are offering a promise of service in that position. And how do you leverage that in terms of your posts and your media and incorporating that is also falling into how do you create relationships? How do you connect with your constituents? Even those who may not have voted for you, how do they feel as though you're there to serve all? So that's the way I approach it, where it's totally, you know, nonpartisan, mm-hmm. but it incorporates the um, congenial elements within Tennessee, because this is just outside of Nashville. So within Tennessee, because okay. you're, you're still 
playing the game and you still need to find a way to communicate effectively. Okay, now, Dr. Busey, you mentioned a little bit of this before, but where do you think some of our rules of etiquette and deference come from? Is that a historical link? Oh, absolutely. I think it's a historical link because the first people who settled in the South were generally second and third and fourth sons of uh, nobility. They were the their their father was a duke or an earl, and Big Brother was going to inherit the estate in England. Hmm. So these people came over here. All people came to the United States who came willingly. Uh, were coming for what a new world offered, opportunity. And so the English brought with them their expectations of people who were not on their level of society. And so consequently, we had, for a while, we had a lot of indentured uh, servants who came because they couldn't get over here any other way. Uh, but we also then began to bring in enslaved people for, at, from Africa as the mortality rate here in North America began to go down and enslaved workers tended to become a more secure financial investment. But everyone of that upper echelon expected to be treated with respect and deference. Certainly the Southerners had much more English influence than did the middle colonies, for example, Pennsylvania and and New York, and they certainly expected children and women to be uh, submissive to the man of the house. Mm -hmm. So I imagine like the terms my lord, my lady turned into sir and ma'am down here. That's exactly right. All right. Now, we can't have a show about Nashville Nights without addressing Bless Your Heart. (laughs) (laughs) Tracy, can you break that down for folks who may not know? Yes. So I'll put on my New Yorker hat. Okay. For bless your heart, bless your heart, if it's used up north, a southerner would be one who uses it because a northerner would basically, they're very direct. And they, they don't mean anything by it. They don't mean to be rude. It's just they're trying to get to where they're going and get everything done. If there is something that they perceive to be stupid, they're just going to say that's stupid. They're going to mm-hmm. say that's dumb. But as Frida mentioned, we are, we're kind We don't want to be perceived as being mean or rude. So we have bless your heart. So if somebody says something that is perceived as that doesn't make a bit of sense, that is stupid, we will say, well, bless his heart. Bless your heart. Mm -hmm. And it is up to you if you understand what we're trying to say, because we're like, that was really dumb what you said, but I'm not going to hurt your feelings by saying it. So I'm just going to say bless your heart. And if you don't understand it, but people around us understand it, they will start snickering because they totally get that basically you gave them a little bit of Southern shade. Okay. That's Mm -hmm. exactly right. Where does it come from, Dr. Busey? Well, I think it comes from the religious tradition that developed here in the South. And, you know, it's an interesting time in which we live in the church attendance is, is going down considerably in this country. And yet people were very religious in the beginning. And I think it came out of, it had religious roots, but, you know, somebody says to you, well, I was unable to find uh, the campus of American Baptist Bible College. 
and you'll say, well, bless your heart. Let me give you directions. Mm. And so it's it's that kind of thing that it is uh, exactly as Tracy said. Well, you don't know. I'm going to tell you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's different connotations and different levels of part of it. Because part would be like, oh, bless your heart. Like, oh, you're special. Like, oh, bless your heart. Like, girl, you need prayer. Like, it's, there's okay. different levels of it, too, on the tone and the connotation that it happens that I think once you live in the South, you understand the degree of, oh, that was stupid or, ooh, we, you need to spend some time, like, as in, like, I'm going to show you the right way. You know, I saw a meme one time. It says there was a cookie that says um, when a Southern lady says I'm not in charge here it was code for saying they're doing it wrong. And that's part of it is like, oh, they don't, they're not part of following protocol or they're not being respectful. And so there's little tones and connotations that you pick up that has a little inflections where, just like Tracy said, we all know what you're saying, but they may not. That is Frida Player. She was joined by fifth generation Nashvillian Tracy Hughes Royal and Davidson County historian Dr. Carol Busey. Thank you all for being here today. And I really mean that from the bottom of my heart. Thanks for tuning in this hour for the best of This Is Nashville 2022. You're listening to our September episode on so-called Nashville Nice. There's more coming up, so stay with us. This is Nashville. And this is the best of This Is Nashville. Okay, I think it's fair to say that most people want to be known as nice. It's a good characteristic to have, but forcing yourself to be nice all of the time may not feel sustainable. And forcing others to act nice, even if they have legitimate complaints, can quickly become problematic. Surface-level niceness can lead to false narratives that prioritize the idea of harmony over messy truth. My next guests have looked at Nashville Nice and learned about its potential downsides. Valley Forrester is a fourth-generation Nashvillean and actress. She is joined by Benjamin Houston, author of The Nashville Way, Racial Etiquette and the Struggle for Social Justice in a Southern City. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Thank you. Now, Valley, your family has been in Nashville for some time now. Before the break, we were talking about the concept of Nashville nice. Did did that resonate with you? Is there anything that you'd like to add? Yeah, I, it did resonate totally with me, um, especially bless your heart, because it does have thousands of meanings. Um, but the thing that most specifically sticks out to me is that I teach um, the Meisner technique of acting. And my mentor, who was from New York City, um, told me that the greatest challenge in teaching Meisner in Nashville was getting past the veil of nice. Mm. Because the technique requires actors to have access to their authentic emotions and their uh, and their instincts. And we were raised here to put being nice before being truthful, um, to put being nice before our real feelings. And so asking people in an acting class to go for their real feelings 
is really tough if they were born and raised here. How does that interrupt what the actor's main job is to do, which is to express emotions? That's exactly, that's the problem. It takes a long time to get people to just simply be truthful Mm. um, because being truthful reads as rude. Mm. And the opposite of nice is rude or offensive or unpleasant things we would never want to be. Now, have you seen the definition of Nashville nice change over the course of your life here? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, and I see it in my classroom now because in my in my studio at Actors Bridge, I get students who are born and raised here, but also folks who have more recently moved here. And I think the effect that they are having on the native Nashvilleian to, um, to become more direct and and see the benefits in it. Now, Ben, you wrote the book, The Nashville Way. So what is The Nashville Way? Well, it's a, a, a sort of stock phrase that alludes to the boosterism that uh, was mentioned early among the Nashville elite that was a way of trumpeting the virtues of the city, um, both to prospective businesses, but also to residents within to try and inculcate a sort of shared value within the city. Um, and I think everybody's uh, testimony has suggested that this this is powerfully true on a social level for folks. Um, with Nashville's history, the problem is, is that it rests rather uneasily with the fact that um, it's it's built on a lot of mythology that Nashville likes to construct about itself and its history. And I think that has to be part of the conversation about how this works. Well, how, how, how did that that fabrication of the history, how did that play out during the civil rights movement and desegregation? Well, it connects to um, this attitude of racial etiquette, um, which governed um, Southern attitudes more generally, but but Nashville certainly um, liked to profess in no uncertain terms. Um, there was a there. There's a way in which um, if you if you are sharing a particular value, then it enables you to stifle the dissension that actually might exist under within a community, right? And actually Nashville is a rich uh, ecosystem of different classes and races and and all sorts of different social markers and manners or shared values such as niceness end up becoming sort of a social lubricant where people can sort of navigate these tensions more or less smoothly. But when the emphasis is on being nice as opposed to becoming more just or more equitable, uh, then that can be a problem. How does that narrative, how does that prevent the city from becoming, from coming to real terms with its history? Well, I think it goes back to, to the mythology, right? The, the fact that, that Nashville always wants to believe in the better angels of its nature, basically. And you can see throughout its history, it's constructed Parthenons. It's called itself Athens of the South, and it's called itself Nice, and it's called itself, um, you know, it's given itself all these appellations, these boosteristic appellations in order to present this image. Um, But when you peel those back, when you have a, a close look at the history of race relations or labor relations or choose your subject, you actually see that 
the the discord and the conflict within is actually much more of a compelling and richer story than what people profess to believe. Now, Valley, you were raised in the church, right? I was. How did niceness factor into your upbringing? Well, when I was growing up, uh, Nashville was veiled in a um, a strong dose of the prosperity gospel, mm. uh, which means that if if God favors you, you are successful. And if you are not successful, God is punishing you for your sinful ways. So mm. uh, if things are going well in your life, God is smiling on you. And if they are not going well, then you're being punished for your sins. That leads people to present only what is nice, only what is cleaned up and shiny and shows God's favor, and to hide what is real and what is true and what is heartbreaking because um, it might lead others to believe that they are not in God's favor. Were those expectations set for everyone? Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay. I think, I think you know, probably more so for women, um, but I think for everyone. Now, as we're talking about these niceties that were expected to come from the church community, I understand that adhering to that ideal did a lot of damage when you were in college. If you feel comfortable sharing, can you tell me what happened? Yes. Um, When I was a junior in college, I, um, I was kidnapped and raped. And I, uh, the man approached me at the BP station at 8th and Wedgwood where I was getting gas. And he asked me if I could help him jumpstart his car. And to my 22-year-old self, it did not occur to me to say no. I was raised to be a good Samaritan um, and I was raised to be nice. And so I said, yes, as soon as I finish pumping gas, I can help. And uh, then I got in my car and he came around to get in the passenger side. And I had this little moment where my gut said, this isn't good. And, but I overrode it because for me not to let him into my car to make him walk while I drove would not have been nice. Mm. And so I reached over and unlocked the door and let him into my car. Um, and he proceeded to pull a knife on me and, and, uh, kidnap me and, and rape me. And, uh, then I didn't tell the story. I, I did prosecute him, and he did go to prison for a very long time. But I did not tell anyone that story publicly because it would show that God did not show favor on me, that I was a sinner and deserved it. What helped you find the help you needed then? One of the big things was... Um, I. I was going to church at St. Augustine's Chapel where Becca Stevens was the minister. Uh, Becca had also experienced sexual violence that she she talks about very openly. Um, she helped me a lot uh, to reframe the story where I was not the victim of it, but the hero of the story. And, and to really smile on that 22-year-old girl who had such a tender heart that she didn't think twice about helping somebody in need. Um, and to put the responsibility in, for the attack on the perpetrator and not on me. Um, that took 10 years to get to, 
But the first time I spoke of it publicly was um, in the vagina monologues that I was producing and directing at Langford Auditorium in front of 1,200 people. And I really thought that I was going to die. I mean, mm. not I. my friends had to carry me onto the stage so that I could own that story publicly. And how did uh, you feel after you were done? Free. Mm-hmm. Immediately. Free. And uh, the whole place rose to their feet, and I was reconstituted in that moment. So considering what you've been through and, and how you've grown, what would you like to share with us about you know, the convenience of being nice versus the authenticity of kindness, particularly to oneself? I would say I run a a program for teenage girls in the summertime called Act Like a Girl. And what I see in them is this craving for something that is real and this craving for Uh, somebody to tell them what's really going on. And I believe that the richness of authentic connection is so much better than niceness. And that if we want to be connected to each other, that means being vulnerable enough to tell the truth about how we feel and what we see in front of us. And that also allows us to trust our instincts something I know I was not raised to do. Thank you very much for sharing your story with us. Now, Ben, you know, we we see all this. How can Nashville, you know, learn from its past and be more authentic with itself as more and more people are moving into this town? Well, I think that it it requires um, harder conversations that niceness may or may not be prepared to um facilitate at the end of the day um as you say everybody wants to be nice it's important it it matters um in terms of this social lubricant but when the conversation is about tension or authenticity or all these things that are coming out then a different rhetorical strategy might be appropriate and of course my book is about the history of race relations there where Um, all the things that have been talked about on a social level in this program were embodied in a city's personality. And in fact, it meant that less change happened rather than more because there was such an emphasis on Nashville feeling good about itself that that became more important than extending the the blessings of Nashville to everybody who is in that community. And so it, it, it comes back to how you define a community. Can you be not nice, not a Nash villain, and yet still be a part of the city? Um, and and I think that requires um, a, a more expansive view about how to approach such things. About 20 seconds. Do you see Nashville's sense of niceness changing? Um I think there's always the potential there, but uh, it has to be a collective endeavor. It has to be people challenging themselves and challenging each other. And you can do that in a nice way, uh, and you can do it in an unnice way. Um, but uh, bless their heart, people have to be willing to change. Amen. <laughs> that is Benjamin Houston. He was joined by the brave Valley Forester. Thank you both for being here today. 
And thank you for joining us this week for the best of This Is Nashville 2022. The year is coming to an end, and what a year it's been for us since we launched back in March. We've been all over this town and region. That's why Monday, we're bringing you a special episode packed with audio from our adventures, from tagging along on a cab ride downtown till 3 a.m., to paying our respects as a man says goodbye to his son in a natural burial ritual. You won't want to miss it. This Is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are Laurent and Demir Blade. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Lake Alona. We'll see you on Monday. Happy New Year, everybody and be good to each other.